This is Family Office Intel. I'm your host, Edward Marshall, and I have the pleasure of Nikki Anani joining us today. So Nikki, thank you for joining us again. This is your second time around. It is. Thank you so much for having me, Edward. Nikki is an accomplished family business strategist and is also a published author of a new book in the space, which I'm sure we're going to have a chance to, to talk about uh, as part of it. But Nikki, for folks that don't know you, uh, how did you get into the family business space? Right. Um, how I got into the family business space was very much inspired by my personal experience. So I was born into an enterprising family. My father particularly is the founder of our enterprise, which consists of three operating businesses and a whole bunch of investments. And I started off my professional career in tax planning, the world of international tax planning in London, very much on the technical side. And three years into my career, when I qualified as a a CPA, the equivalent of in the UK, I decided to, um, I was itching for change. I was itching for something more exciting. And it seemed like entrepreneurship was calling me. I decided to work in my family enterprise with my dad. And it was a real slam dunk and a huge transition. I was based in the UK. Our family enterprise is in Lagos and Nigeria, very different environments. I was pivoting from a very professional Deloitte um, environment to a more entrepreneurial, informal environment. Um, And there was also moving from corporate to now a family enterprise. But I, I quite, I struggled a bit with integrating because of the lack of formality. I also struggled a bit with finding my feet and finding my fit where my best fit would be in the enterprise. And so my firsthand experience in that really inspired me to think: where are the Sherpas, the guides, the the advisors to help families like myself dealing with intergenerational transition and integration, um, how to help the rising generation deal with the complexities of ownership, leadership, and partnership. And that really then sparked a light within me, a fire within me to really train up as a professional in this space, not just as a family business owner, but as a practitioner. And I started working with rising gents in these areas. So for the past four years, I've been a coach, a trusted advisor, a consultant to rising gents. I work one-on-one. I also do peer groups um, of rising gents that are navigating similar transitions around usually integrating into the business or thinking about leaving the family enterprise, grappling with what's my purpose, as well as how do I help to contribute towards the family legacy? How do I become a meaningful contributor? Um, That's where I get involved. Excellent. So your focus on uh, family offices and being in the UK, I think we've talked about this before. There there are a lot of families that are from the African continent that have some sort of uh, reach in into London. Is that still the case today? Correct. So when we think about the big economies in Africa, a lot of them are were British colonized. And as a result, you find that families have links to the UK, whether it's education or they've got a property or if they're enterprising families, they may have some kind of advisors that are UK based. Um, and that was the case for, for, for my family. So 
at the age of nine, myself and my brothers and my mum, we moved to the UK for our education. Um, so I was there from nine till I moved back to Nigeria. Um, so I was there for about 16 years. Um, and in setting up the family office, a number of our advisors were based out of London, our tax advisors, our um, trustees, um, our attorneys were all based out of the UK. And and, and that's quite commonplace. Um, you still find that a lot of families do have some kind of nexus in with the UK. Um, and particularly with COVID, we're seeing a lot of folks moving out of just being um, primarily being located in Africa to now by co-locating from London and say Nairobi or London and Lagos, London and Accra and so on and so forth. Let's talk about your book, Lifetime to Legacy. What what inspired you uh, to to write this book, and what was what's kind of the focus of it in general? Right, I was really inspired by, like I mentioned, my personal experience and my experience with working with clients. I found that a lot of the time in this space, the discourse on building generational wealth and wealth. Um, intergenerational businesses was very much about the technical side of things. So thinking about the tax and estate planning, thinking about the financial planning and the strategic business planning. But in my personal experience and with sherpering my clients, I found that frankly, where they got stuck was not on the quantitative side, but it was on the qualitative side. It was issues around the relational how do we bring up difficult conversations with the elder gen around death? What's next? The meaning of money? Should we get a prenuptial agreement and things like that? Um, how do we deal with conflict? How do we resolve conflicts amongst each other and really align on this rallying common shared vision and purpose? How do we define this galvanizing vision and purpose that unites us all with respect to not just the business, but just broadly speaking, even wealth planning? And I thought it was very important to educate families, not just on the quantitative. There's a lot of education that happens with respect to um, financial literacy, understanding trusts and beneficiaries, but really getting them to be fluent in the language of the qualitative, the relational issues around healthy um, communication across generations, issues around forming a common vision and common um, purpose, issues around having um, good policies and procedures in place to ensure that we are able to draw strength from each family member's resources and move towards legacy rather than just building a business for a lifetime and then it all dissipates. Talk to us about the cultural differences and and how do you look at that lens vis-a-vis mm. uh, -vis, uh, different families in different parts of the world how how important is culture uh, when you're when you're advising these families because I assume that there's a lot of uh, similarities that you've seen with families and family businesses that you've worked with, um, uh, with over the years but are there nuances that you found either pretty straightforward or some things that you just didn't quite expect because you're not just working with families in North America, you're working with families all around the world. Right, right. No, this is a great question. And there are cultural nuances. Um, for instance, in Africa, um, we're a lot more collectivists and there's, you know, in the West is very much promotion of independence and individual thought, um, you know, um, 
individual purpose and whatnot but in Africa there's more a sense of interdependence like what is the collective um what is the collective purpose what is the collective what are our collective roles within this what's our responsibility towards also this community to ensure that we have skill sharing resource sharing and we're uplifting the welfare of the entire community and this gets quite challenging particularly where you have with the next generation when folks like myself are educated in the west and they come back to the family enterprise whether literally or metaphorically with very western thinking and so we then tend to see a lot of cultural clashes between the first gen and the next gen where the first gen may expect as a result of the cultural inclination towards collectivism you have a responsibility towards this joint effort and the next gen on the other hand are saying how is this going to impact me how is me getting involved in this addressing my vision my mission in life and how would i get fulfilled and it can be a source of tension i think it's to really important when families are navigating these clashes it can be easy to write these off as generational clashes like the first gen are interested in x and the next gen are interested in y but quite often at the heart of it is a cultural clash and helping families understand the sources of the clash and gaining empathy for one another across generations to kind of carve out a new normal for themselves what works best for the family is really important so that's a that's a theme i'm seeing is folks in the west versus folks that are um say from southeast asia or latin america or africa there's a different disposition towards how the expectations with respect to family family members um and the enterprise well some of those those clashes are self-generated right so people are traveling overseas they're living they're living abroad they're being educated abroad they're like you they had a career abroad and they come back hmm. uh, some of them are uh, to be expected uh, one one would think how how have you seen you know mm-hmm. folks navigate some of those those clashes that 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 do come up um yeah you would you would think that some of these are to be expected but quite often on the part of the founders when uh, they cross over this land of wealth and they become quite affluent they just want to give their kids the best foundation and as they see it is send them to the best schools in the world and they don't necessarily think through the cultural societal implications of that for instance um their next generation may not come back right i chose to come back um but i have friends colleagues um clients within my community who have not chosen to come back and that can have a huge impl- um implication for the business when we start thinking about how we're going to engage a rising generation particularly from afar um so it's really helping the founders to understand the implications of decisions that have been made of course we can't go back in the past but then now navigating this new normal and aligning on expectations and assumptions a lot of it, there is a, there tends to be a lot of assumptions projected on both sides of the table um 
the next generation are entitled. They've abandoned their responsibilities. They're not as committed to being um, owners or leaders. It, it, it all stems from this cultural clash as a result of their deferring exp- um, deferring um, experiences. And equally, the rising gen may look at the the founding gen. They just won't let go. They're so old school. They they're not embracing new change, and they're not professionalizing and institutionalizing. Well, they're probably operating in environments where there's low institutional trust that requires that individuals have very strong relationships with stakeholders and get very um, involved in operational matters. So. There's the cultural piece is, is really quite significant. So when you start working with the family uh, on those types of issues, let's just talk about the, the cultural clash of um, with, you know, you can see those cu- types of cultural clashes or, or uh, disagreements and how people view the world, even if somebody didn't travel far away for a while. How do you how do you get started? Because this can't be something that can be solved overnight. And uh, I've never worked with a principal that wanted that had patience in their DNA. Uh, how, how do you how do you get started? Great question. Um, it's I say that we focus on um, evolutions, not revolutions. So these are not instant changes, but it's really getting each individual in a safe space to explore their assumptions and expectations. And where these expectations are coming from, where these assumptions are coming from, and then coming together and moving from a monologue to embracing a dialogue and starting to carve out a new norm for one another. Um, Quite often when we gain understanding of where our family members are coming from, we develop deep empathy. That's half of that's half of the work. And then we're able to then look at forging a new normal that's that's all in compassion. That's um, it's mutually beneficial for both parties. The examples that typically we talk about are best practices, mm-hmm. and families have uh, of where best practices occur. Uh, but even when they're when you're trying best practices, sometimes you don't end up with the success because right. of a couple of different pitfalls or uh, some things that families don't do. Um, uh, as efficiently or as well, what what are some of the pitfalls that you've seen that 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 get in the way of these families uh, to mm. uh, to kind of make that breakthrough where they can where they can find some of that empathy that you're talking about? Mm, that's a really good question. Quite often, what I observe is there's a lot of past hurts, um, and as a result of disappointment, and as a result of missed expectations, that leads to um, family members not being able to communicate as vulnerably. Because this is we're not just talking about technical matters, like I alluded to. We're talking about really emotional matters, right? Um, how do we have a conversation on? mom, dad, when you're not here, what's next? Who amongst our siblings would you like to lead? If so, um, this can bring up, you know, um, issues around sibling rivalry, around past conflicts and so on and so forth. So uh, a common pitfall that I see is families avoiding this difficult conversations in the bid to keep the peace 
But frankly, there's no peace because everyone senses that there's a huge elephant in the room and we're really not having an important conversation that needs to be had. Um, and then so we we have all the trusts and the, the structures in place, the technical structures, but when you approach the rising gen with respect to, do you understand your roles and responsibilities towards the family enterprise and they're looking, you know, quite lost or how engaged do you really feel with the family enterprise? They're really not. Or you talk to the founding gen, how how comfortable do you feel that your children are prepared for the complexities of what's coming their way? And, and they're not. A lot of it stems down to this uh, inability or unwillingness to have these difficult conversations due to past hurts and, and so on and so forth. In your book, you talk about a very interesting concept of conversational intelligence. Mm. Uh, I think it's a, it's an interesting area uh, to explore uh, because it's an area of how to, how people are able to express themselves. And, and mm. what, what does that look like for you uh, when you're working with these families and, and how do you help them get a little bit higher up the scale to, to mm. have that empathy and, 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 and really bring out those conversational intelligence skills. Right. Um, I find that within families and it's natural, we tend to have kind of top down communication due to the extension of the family relationships into the business sphere. By that, I mean the patriarch or the matriarch is used to, you know, telling the children what to do or giving directions and, you know, essentially giving out orders. But when it comes to legacy planning, we really want a situation where we're able to create sufficient safety, where everyone voices their opinion, and we can actually have diversity of thought. So we're moving away from a monologue, so to speak, to actual a conversation that's inclusive, where parties are looking about how to co-create solutions. And when we think about it within the context of a family enterprise, this intergenerational um, diversity that we have within an enterprise, I believe, is, is a really it's a great natural gift that families are endowed with. We have people from different generations. We have people from different genders. And we can draw upon the strengths of different generations. The next generation tend to have their pulse on, you know, um, technology, they're digitally native. They tend to have their pulse on social issues and this kind of confluence between profit and, and social change and solutions. Whereas the older gen tend to have their pulse on, they have so much grit, so much like historical knowledge, collective wisdom and intelligence that they can bring to the fore. And if we're able to truly collaborate and have a situation where we have intelligence, we're, not, we're, we're just not sharing information, but we're actually co-creating solutions. We're able to develop a lot of trust and partnership within the family enterprise. What's kind of the secret sauce that you've seen families that do well in these areas? Is it the ability to be open? Is that just the... That that sounds like it's a it's a it's an important first step. Right. But what what are some of the other things that you see that are common across all families that are able to make these successful leaps and you know unions between these different generations that you that you work with? 
Mm. I think the ability to be open is one step. And I think a number of families can get over that hurdle through, you know, planning, estate planning and involving the rising gen, like this is what we're thinking and so on and so forth. But I think there's, there's more beyond that. I think the ability to be vulnerable and share um, not just the triumphs of the family, but also the trials. Because quite often the, the rising gen see the founding gen as giants that they just can't compare to. And the expectations, the burdens of stewardship can can be can be very heavy for the rising gen. So being able to share not just positive events that are happening in the business or that have happened, but also negative events and how the founding gen pulled through those events to model out grit, resiliency, um, having a positive mindset. These are key skills that the rising gens will need on their journey of as entrepreneurs, as investors. Um, I also think that um, a key skill that families will need is to create safety, just creating that safety to come and, and share difficult conversations and also creating a safety for failure because it's inevitable. Um, entrepreneurs, the, 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 the journey of every entrepreneur, there's failure on that journey, right? And to quite often founders want to protect the next generation from adversities, but for them to become leaders in their own right and gain their muscle, they also need to learn how to fail. They will make mistakes, but use mistakes, failures as a learning opportunity and to use it as a well of information that not just they learn from, but all family members can learn from as well. One of the interesting families that I I enjoyed working with told they were a multi-generational family. I think they were in Gen 5 when I got to know them. They said it took us two to three generations to realize that we don't give birth to private equity professionals or business <laughs> operators. They just don't magically appear. Mm. What, what if... What do you do when family members or the rising generation are very successful? They have ambitions of their own, but they don't want to be necessarily involved with the family enterprise. Mm. What have you seen that's been successful in, in those families that come to that realization when they're when they're working and talking to you? Right. I, the families that are most successful, I find focus on the strengths identifying, helping the rising gen find their strengths and um, encouraging and feeding their strengths, curating for both their careers and also the roles within the family enterprise, if any, um, that really draws upon their strengths and their passions and their interests. Um, and just being flexible and adaptable to how the rising gen can be engaged and can be involved in the family enterprise. I think that's, that's something I've seen modeled out quite well but I think to limit the conversation to let the rising gen do what they want to do is it it does it may mean that there's so many functions that the family family needs to occupy within you know the enterprise that essentially are not being occupied and by that I don't mean any particular leadership role you can hire for a non-family staff to be the president or of the family business or the or of the family office, but there's more the relational elements that need to be looked into, like family learning, um, family bonding, um, you know, educating the rising gens and, and all family members and so on and so forth. I do think that um, to some extent, 
passion can be learned. Um, and it's really exposing the rising gen um, to the foundations, the information on the family business, and and also encouraging them to get involved in whatever capacity that they're interested in. So it's it's a bit of a, a dance in my view, and it's it's quite difficult for for founders to find this happy medium on their own because oftentimes they come with their expectations of how the family members should get involved. And that's where a third party is really helpful to help curate and sit um, with the next gen to find what are your strengths. And we you, we seek to deploy and develop those strengths as much as possible, but also we develop your interest and your engagement within the enterprise. So what was your favorite and least favorite part about writing your book and the research that you did in it <laughs> having having taken taken that up in the past myself i know it, it it can be there can be some fun ups and some interesting downs as part of the process mm, that's a really good question my favorite part of writing the book was learning just how important um the soft stuff is for instance gaining clarity of purpose and just how as human beings we're so oriented to doing without stopping back to take a step back to understand why are we doing what we're doing and the importance of doing that not just as individuals but more so when we have more than one player stakeholder involved really gaining clarity on that my least favorite part of the book was having to develop the grit (laughs) And the discipline to sit down and write it, because obviously there were days where I was just like, I'm tired. I have writer's block. I want to go just find something else to do. But just showing up, I I really, I grew leaps and bounds in my personal development with, with respect to the stories I tell myself and how I'm able to essentially um, encourage myself, motivate myself to do things that I don't want to do. So it developed my discipline quotient by leaps and bounds. <laughs> Some growth with this as well. So right, no, that's fantastic. Well, listen, I, my last question to you, lesson learned. Uh, something that you had wish you had known uh, back when you started working with families and family enterprises that you've, that you've come to know very well today. What, what, what's your one lesson learned? Mm. My one lesson learned, honestly, is to, because I'm a rising gen, I can, I did oftentimes come with my um, assumptions and prejudices of the founding gen to really develop deep empathy for them and um, the loneliness, the difficulty of dealing with transition dealing with questions over the rising gen's ability to integrate, whether they're able to take over. If so, if they want to take over, um, I wish I'd had a lot more empathy for founders. Nikkei, if folks want to get in touch with you, what's the, what's the best way to, what's the best way to find you? Best way to find me would be on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Just search for Nikkei and Annie. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Nikkei. Thank you so much, Edward. All right. Well, that's it. Awesome. Bye, everyone.